All right, everyone. We're here with Jesse Hudson. Jesse, uh, one of the most interesting people in the psychedelic space and also one of the few people in the psychedelic space whose kind of entire career has been devoted to the cause of psychedelics, unlike a lot of people who you know have had other careers in other areas that just sort of jumped onto the psychedelics hype train recently. So Jesse, thank you so much for coming on. You have a very cool story and I'm super excited to you know get to jam on some of these cool topics that we have ready to go today. Rom, thanks for having me, man. It, it's really a pleasure to be on here with you and to get to jam about psychedelics. <laughs> Hell yes. Everyone's favorite topic. Um, yeah. So like I was kind of saying, man, you you do have an interesting backstory and in that you've been into this thing forever and you kind of structured everything, including your you know college education around you know advancing the cause of psychedelics. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that before we get into some of the juicier stuff? Yeah, man. I mean, it like it, like Alan Watts says, he's one of my favorite philosophers. It's a game that's worth the candle, and I think that dates back to when you played games by candlelight, and you would basically have a candle that lasted an hour and a half or so, and then when the candle was done, like well, you paid for the candle, and the game that you played was worth it. And when I stumbled across the deep information set related to psychedelics and in theogens, I was amazed. And that was when I moved from Hong Kong, where I was born and raised, to rural Virginia, Orange County, at a small all-boys boarding school called Woodbury Forest. And I didn't really have a lot to do. And I turned to books. And the books that I turned to were mainly related to anthropology and ethnobotany, specifically the ethnobotany of entheogenic plants used by indigenous peoples for, for in some cases, millennia. And that interest was sparked by a moment in a friend's dorm room when he made a joke about Trey Anastasio, one of the, the leads of fish, that Trey Anastasio says you smoke DMT and you trip to another world. So I Googled DMT and we came across this Airwood trip report page and dug into some of those firsthand narrative accounts, which totally blew my mind. As a kid growing up reading fantasy novels like Lord of the Rings and Wheel of Time, where people are engaging with magic and engaging with other worlds, to read real accounts like this nonfiction fantasy of people's experiences with you know, the direct kind of the, the direct experiences with psychedelic medicines and the worlds that they open up. I was to totally floored. And I said, this is worth investigating deeper because not only is there all this cool, fantastical stuff that happens in those experiences, but there's also this drive towards something more meaningful, like this ineffable cosmic truth that as a teenager, right? Like right at the age where you're supposed to like have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah and like come of age, you have this spiritual awakening. I was going through this spiritual awakening process by learning this information related to people's experiences with psychedelics. And, and once you kind of start going down that rabbit hole, as I'm sure you've done and, and probably most people listening to this podcast have done, you start to get to this deep mystery of like, well, why are we here? Who are we? 
you know, what is life about? What is God? What is the, what is the divine? What is the spirit world? Is it attainable in a repeatable fashion? You know, is there like this almost semi-scientific process we can use to replicate the same results that people are getting? And, and that to me is the heart of shamanism. And so I, I kind of studied this broad based idea of shamanism from around 15 or 16 through sites like Arrowid and the late great deoxyribonucleic hyperdimension, which had all this amazing information from Terence McKenna and Timothy Leary and Alistair Crowley and some of the other great thought leaders of the early, you could say, psychedelic revolution. Hell yeah, man. And so you, you, you sort of stumble onto that stuff at an early age and then you ended up going to law school to like further, you know, what, what was sort of the thinking behind that? Yeah, it started with anthropology. So I was like teenager in high school. It's like, all I want to do is study anthropology. Um, and I was on a chairlift in Whistler on Harmony Bowl talking to an old Canadian dude. And he was like, Oh dude, if you want to study anthropology, like you better read a book by Wade Davis, fellow Canadian. So I did. And in an old bookstore in Charlottesville, Virginia, I found an old copy of the serpent in the rainbow, which is a book Wade wrote when he was a grad student studying under Richard Evans Schultes, the father of modern ethnobotany at Harvard. And Wade was actually a TA for his class. And Schultes called him into his office one day and he said, Wade, we're getting reports from Haiti that people are stumbling into the hospital looking like zombies. Can you figure out what's going on down there? And, you know, can you imagine getting that assignment as a grad student? He was like, fuck yeah, I'm going. And he, he went there to get to the bottom of the mystery of zombification. And what he found was that villagers in remote communities we're using shamanic zombification as a method of self-policing because there were no police in those areas. So families of people who were abusive husbands or, or abusive community members would go to the shamanic council and they'd pay for the abuser to be zombified. And so what the, sh the shamans would do is they'd make this potion out of pufferfish toxin, which coincidentally is also eaten in Japan but you have to be a licensed chef to, to, to cut it. And if you cut it in the wrong way, it causes this neurotoxic event, shuts you down. Isn't, and, and isn't even, that like illegal in the U.S.? But it's yeah, I know, it, interesting. Yeah, I've, I've It's illegal in the before. U.S. And actually, it, it's slightly kind of, uh, it's slightly like, uh, in some ways, like semi-hallucinogenic in the way that ketamine is. And so like, if you cut it the right way, you actually get a little high when you eat it. You tingle all over because there's this like neurotoxin inside of it. But if you cut it the wrong way, when neurotoxin gets very toxic and, and people often die. But what happens if they don't fully die is they go into like a catatonic state, like in Romeo and Juliet, that Juliet went into with this fake, fake potion. Then they wake up like five days later and they're like, I was aware the whole time. I saw everything happen. And so now it's customary in Japan for somebody who dies from fugu poisoning, just puffer fish, to not be buried for four or five days because there's so many stories of them waking up in their coffins and being like, 
Like what the fuck, guys? I, you were I was Dude, being so, buried. <laughs> Jesus Christ! So, so, so the um the people in Haiti, you're, you're acting out, and instead of you know going to the police or whatever, the shaman somehow slips you this potion, and then instead of going to like a physical prison, you go into like a drug induced prison where you can't like hurt anyone. Dude, that's all. That's almost like scary as fuck. Oh, dude, it's super um, that's scary, almo- right? that's almost scarier than real j- than regular jail. Um, like zombies are scary, man. And 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 it's it's even scarier to think that it's not just like this fantasy thing, but it's actually like nonfiction. Zombification is real, and and so they make this potion, right? It turns into a powder, and they like blow it in the face of the person or they put it on their doorstep and they'd absorb it through the bottom of their feet. Coincidentally, it's also used in Colombia by often by prostitutes to, to, to get Johns to could totally be under their control, like almost like a mind control drug. They call it scopolamine or the devil's breath. And there's a great vice, uh, vice video reporting about it. Wow. So yeah, so I think, this, mm-hmm. sorry, I was just, you, you yeah. go ahead. No, no, man. All right. So we're talking about like these crazy, you know, substances, ethnobotany. Um, I feel like, you know, everyone is aware of ayahuasca. Everyone's aware of psilocybin. Everyone's aware of, you know, some of these sort of like standard psychedelics. But there are so many like crazy ass naturally occurring substances out there that have probably barely been cataloged by even some of the indigenous tribes, especially not like, um, you know, people in the U.S. or something. So is is a big focus of what you're working on now, like trying to uncover these like less well-known, um, you know, plants and substances and sort of bring them into the, you know, the mainstream? Is that kind of like yeah, a big goal for you? You could say that that's my core focus right now, that I've kind of, I've found the trail like a truffle pig of a new mushroom or a new fungi deep in the Amazon used by the Shipibo Kanibo tribe for many hundreds of years as one of their core semi-sacred plants, they call Kunawasta. And I call Kenewaste, totally bastardizing it. It's a little easier <laughs> to say that way. <laughs> I actually have a vial of an oil extract of it. The essential oh, show, oil. show us for those on right for those here. watching on YouTube. Right okay. here. And and so what what this is 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 kind of the oil distillation of the underlying plant slash fungi that grows on its roots. And it smells amazing. Like my whole office smells like this tiny little vial. Um, so you have these like, you know, super volatile compounds in here that could be good for perfume. And the Shipibo use it, among other things, for perfume. So they'll they'll like spread it around their houses for good luck or for you know, good luck in love. But the more interesting use of it is that they take the roots of this river grass, Kunawasta, and they squeeze it like fresh ginger to get a few drops of liquid. And then they put that in their eyes in order to make their ancestral art they call Kuna. And you can see a few a few examples from my collection of kana here on this ladder behind me. These beautiful abstract geometric patterns that are very mathematical, very fractal, and coming from this pre-mathematical society. Um, actually, I have another one. We'll uh, have to. We'll, let's put. We'll put a link to some like art in the show notes that way, because not everyone's going to be watching on YouTube. Some people might okay, just be cool. listening. Yeah, so. yeah. I have a pretty good archive. I've been assembling of the of the kana. Um, so. We have like a digital archive from an organization I've been supporting called Fundacion Kunarao, which is like a Shipibo-owned 
foundation for developing IP related to the Kana art. And just so, for, for mm-hmm. people that don't know, the, the Shipibo tribe, they're kind of one of the main tribes known for ayahuasca use as well, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah. Them them, and the Hunikuin are kind of the two big ayahuasca, uh, itinerant ayahuasca shaman tribes. There's a little bit of, uh, of activity from the Ashaninka and, and some of others like the Yawanawa and the Shuar. But the biggest culturally in terms of the the cultural consciousness of the West are the Shipibo Kanibo and the Hunikuin in Brazil. Shipibo is a tribe of about 200, uh, 20,000 to 25,000 people in the Ucayali River Basin of the Peruvian Amazon. And they have a even a city um, adjacent to the city of Pucallpa, Peru, uh, called Yarina Cocha, which is really beautiful. Like if you go there, you can fly directly into there and you'll see the Shipibo side of the city has all this amazing Kene art all over the buildings. And this is beautiful murals. And like people are still wearing their traditional dress, which are like the, the skirts that these are. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of ayahuasca activity there. So there are, are tons of lodges, kind of the most famous one, the temple of the way of the light is right near there, which employs a lot of Shipibo shamans. And there's, you know, all kinds of uh, ayahuasca-related activity. And many people associate this, this Kene art with ayahuasca because um, it's pretty prevalent in these ayahuasca circles, either as um, kind of art that people sell or as visions that people have. Yeah, that's where you get to I, I had really seen it before, and I always associated it with just, oh, this is, you know, the traditional art of their tribe. Maybe they get, maybe it's influenced from the ayahuasca trip. But until you told me that it was based on this sort of eyedrop method that they have, um, g- go into that a little bit more about how, like, the eyedrop actually causes the, you know, visual distortions, I guess. Yeah. So there's a lot of mystery to it, Brom, that I'm digging into. Another game worth the candle, because when my source first told me about it in 2015, when I was there during law school uh, in Pucallpa, he said, yeah, you know, if you're interested in Kene art, which which I was because I just fell in love with the art form itself, then you should know that we have a plant called Kene Waste that we use to make this art. And the traditional use is like quite robust. So like when a, when a woman is born, they often give her on her cut umbilical cord a few drops of this plant, kanawasta, and then at her first period, they give her more, a little teaspoonful, and then some on again on her belly button. And then they train her to produce kana art using that same methodology and that same plant. And then for boys... It's typically used for a cognition enhancer when they're having learning difficulties, almost like an ADHD medicine. And is that consumed via the eye drops as well, or just orally, or often orally? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Okay, okay. So you don't have as a to cold do it water extraction. And if you put, do it orally, do you also get the visual distortions, or is that only with the eye drop? I think it's only with the eye drop. I don't know. You know, there's a lot more mystery to investigate and actively investigating that with partners at the University of Michigan Natural Products Discovery Corps. Uh, as well as a, 
uh, Institute of Investigation in Iquitos, Peru. And, and looking at like, you know, what are the different methods of use? What are the different extracts we can make in, in their, you know, their potencies? But at least from the ethnobotanical literature and reports from Shipibo people, they're using the, the boys are using kind of the, the drops for mainly just studying better. And that's where you get to get into the really interesting science. Because it turns out that the plant Kanawasta, which is this river grass, has an endophytic fungi in the Balanzia family, which is quite famous for, for ergot and, and LSD. Um, and because you have these Balanzia endophytic fungi, you likely have the active alkaloids in Lysergamide family or, or ergoline family, which means they're pretty similar, like likely pretty similar to LSD or LSA. And because of that, you have some interesting parallels to some of the research being done on LSD right now, right? Where people are looking at it for ADHD, people learning at it for cognition enhancement, for productivity, for studying. And um, people are also looking at it as, you know, a hallucinogen. Do you think that you, you talked about how it's used differently for the men and the women in that tribe? Do you think that that is just entirely cultural or do you think that there may be different ways that men and women handled this plant or like different, you know, gender bit, like biological gender based variances in how the body processes psychedelics? I, I don't know. You know, you know, gender is a social construct, at least according to anthropological thought and theory. So it's hard to say that there's a substantial difference between how, how genders may react to the plant. So I do think it's, it's a cultural discrepancy. And however, interestingly enough, other cultivars of this plant, maybe other species, but the same kind of thing, river grass with an endophytic fungi, are used for hormonal birth control for women. And another one is used for uh, an abortificant, so for abortions. So they actually have naturally, like they have something that is actually a functional birth control that they... Yeah. Made from a plant just like this. And a functional abortificant too. Wow. Interesting. That's, I did not, I, I you know, I've heard about the, um, you know, abortion-inducing drugs before from natural substances, but I did not know that there was any effective uh, birth control. It's interesting. So it's, you know, it's worth exploring not only the Kene Waste plant, but also all the other Wastes that are, that they're using, which are like 11 or 12 of them that they cultivate for different uses. So they've got 12 of these things. You're focused on one, but who knows yeah. what the other ones could be. And of course, who knows what some of these other tribes in that region might have discovered that we don't even know about. Yeah. Th there's a pretty good piece of, piece of ethno ethnobotanical literature analyzing them called, uh, in a chapter of the Garden of Eden by Snoo Vogelbrinder, which is like this classic underground ethnobotanical tomb that if you're interested in ethnobotanical plants of, with psychedelic effects, I highly recommend it. it. It's in some ways a step up of from Plants of the Gods, which is the most famous tomb around ethno, ethnobotanical plants. Snoo Vogelbrinder's The Garden of Eden, which is exceedingly hard to find, has some really interesting information, especially with related, with, with, um, respect to these plants. Okay. 
good references for people to look up. Um, so, so the goal is to, you know, basically figure out what the, what the science behind these substances is, see how they might be useful and then figure out how to, you know, obviously cultivate them on a larger scale and maybe bring them to, you know, bring them out of the Amazon into, you know, the more mainstream thought. And this sort of gets into questions of, some might call it cultural appropriation. Some might call it reciprocity. What What are your thoughts on that? And how do we make sure that we're not just like, you know, a bunch of white dudes pillaging, you know, their IP, if you want to call it that? Mm-hmm. The key is prior informed consent. And that's required under international law, uh, under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which in it describes this right to free prior and informed consent, where any company with a project that could impact indigenous people's natural resources, which include genetic resources, has to obtain free prior and informed consent from them and an ongoing consultation in order to to legitimately work with that natural resource or genetic resource. And then the second law that applies is, is the Nagoya Protocol for access and benefit sharing. And so any party that's looking to develop plants with indigenous peoples or from indigenous peoples traditional knowledge should be following those two laws. And so the way that we've done it at this project, which I'm calling Kene Life, lifestyle and life science, is through buy-in from the Shipibo Kanibo tribe as a whole. So, you know, a few years ago I started this foundation. Kenne Rao Foundation, which is an IP defense fund, an art lab in Peru, owned and operated by Shipibo people, um, mainly by my my friend, Daymer Gonzalez Vasquez, who's one of three Shipibo lawyers. He was a law student when I met him at the time, and I sponsored his law degree on the condition that he write his dissertation about this, <laughs> about, about like protecting Shipibo IP. And, uh, and, uh, and through Kene Rao Foundation, we've secured partnerships with the Peruvian copyright and trademark and patent agency, Indicopi, so like the Peruvian equivalent of the USPTO, who said, yeah, we, we're really buying into this project. We want to support you in, in doing this right, developing the IP in the right way in consultation with the native population. And then also secured a partnership with the Peruvian Ministry of Culture, who are super stoked about the project. And then beyond that, right, which are both like external state-based institutions. That- right, they're not the tribe. Curious to know that like in general, what what is like the attitude from, you know, the Shipibo people? Are they like, this is our shit? We want to, we're the, the keepers of it? Or are they like, yeah, everyone should have it? it or is it somewhere in between? It, it's in between. They're like, they're like, we are super stoked about this idea. IP is new to them in general. It, like Damer is saying, like this this concept that we've introduced through Kenny Rao Foundation of IP defense is novel in the discourse of the tribe as a whole, which is mainly focused on real property defense, like defensive lands and territories. And they're starting to realize and wake up to this concept that their cultural property is also super valuable and protectable and can be a source of great wealth. So there's a lot of buy-in at an institutional level and at a tribe as a whole level, evidenced by these 20 community leaders who on their own dime traveled upriver to 
ask Dane Mayer to run for president and endorse him for running for president to bring this model of IP development to the tribe as a whole through the Shipibo Bank. And as a result, surprisingly, right, for somebody who kind of grew up in the anthropological decolonizing, a little anti-capitalist mentality, and, and then kind of woke up to the reality of what the local people really wanted after spending considerable time with them in, you know, one-to-one peer-to-peer conversation and realizing that their perspective, <laughs> funnily enough, is not protectionist, nanny state, can you give us more protection and, and keep us safe? It's like, can you leave us alone to do what we want to do? And in that way, they have actually many more political similarities with libertarians than they do with um, hardcore socialism. Interesting. So they're more just like, hey, you know, we just want to be able to do our thing. You guys can have the, you guys can use the plant if you want to, you know, maybe throw us a little something our way. But, you know, in general, we're not looking for like huge, you know, we don't want a whole bunch of contracts and, uh, you know, crazy protection things. Is that kind of what you're saying? No, like, they, do, they don't want state-based contracts and protections. They want private contracts and protections. So they want to be the owners of the IP, and then they want to license that out to values-aligned partners. And so that, that's where we come in, right? We're like, okay, well, we want to help develop this IP. We want to help you file patents, but we want you to be the owner of the patent and give us a license to use it, and then we pay royalties um, and, and that kind of concept of royalties, I think is really appropriate because in my mind, and, and maybe this is still like a vestige of the noble savage archetype that is detrimental ultimately in the long-term view of indigenous peoples. Uh, but I think that they deserve to feel like royalty. Interesting. Yeah. I see what you, I see what you mean. So how do you imagine this stuff sort of manifesting in, you know, in the West, you know, this, the Kenne Life Project succeeds, what does that look like? Like what types of things are, you know, people like me in Los Angeles doing with Kenne? Three things to start, art. It's like, just like in my own journey into Kenne, it started with the art, this obsession with the beauty of the mathematical fractals that they make. And the rich mythology of those art pieces being a form of indigenous sheet music, like a totally alternative form of sheet music compared to what we have in the West, where they say, you can look at that Kenne pattern, of which there are many, and learn the song that it contains, the melody that it has. And, and people have even told me, yeah, we, we had a Shipibo shaman at our retreat in Costa Rica, and she said, oh, that I know that song in that Kenne pattern you have. Here it is. And she sang it. Whoa. So wait, those are, are these songs like the, what do they call it? Like the Icaros, the ayahuasca Icaros, songs? Yeah. Okay. They're like healing ayahuasca songs. And often in an ayahuasca ceremony, a shaman will start singing this Icaro and you'll fucking see the kenes coming out of them and like going around the space. So even though the kenes are 2D on the skirts and 2D on the pieces of art, in reality, they're 2D representations of a three-dimensional matrix that you'll see that is almost like a circuit board of consciousness emanating throughout what is otherwise empty space in order to fill it up, almost like the matrix. Yeah. I've seen, I mean, I've, I've done ayahuasca before, and I've seen 
patterns that are similar to the Kenai stuff for sure. Um, and it's it seems to be somewhat distinct from the types of patterns that you see on LSE. Similar, but like there seems to be something there. How much of that is like, you know, expectation? I don't know. But yeah, it's it's certainly, it seems like there's something to that. We were, we were kind of talking about um, how this stuff is sheet music. And we started talking about that because, uh, you know, I was asking you, the Kennedy Life Project succeeds. What does that mean, you know, two or three years from now, you know, for, you know, people living in American cities? Like, what, what, what am I doing with Kennedy? And you said, well, there's the art is the first thing, but there may be two more things. Yep, two more things. So first you have your art and your music and your mythology. And you're going to engage with that as a consumer through consumer products like yoga mats with Kenne on them so that you're doing your yoga practice on what is essentially a healing shamanic song. And that image is fair licensed with royalties paid to the original artist and to a collective fund to protect the tribe in order to respect this idea of collective ownership of the IP. So, you know, maybe it's like a collab with Manduka for a Manduka yoga towel with Kenne on it. And uh, maybe it's a collab with Burton for a set of luggage with Kenne on them, both of which we've spoken with and who are interested in, in, you know, potentially releasing a collection. And so that's step one is like the art economy and the creator economy bringing Kenne into the digital world because they have this interesting appeal to the digital world because they look like these circuit boards of consciousness. It's like a, you know, a blend of the digital and analog. And then there's with that courses, like how do you make the art? How do you learn to see Kenne? Because it's an art to learn to see them in itself. Almost like uh, if you've read some literature on shamanism, there's a lot of talk about seers and learning to see. And, and what they're talking about when they talk about learning to see as a shaman is to see the spirit world with your own eyes. And what that often looks like is like Kenne in the space. You know, it's like the spirit world is like this layer on top of ordinary reality that, you know, one who studies enough can learn to see. So there's like course content and all of these different ways of engaging with the art itself and the art as medicine. And then inside of that initial push into art is the very interesting plant-based medicine or rather botanical medicine because it's a plant plus mushroom or plant plus fungi. And that, what we want to bring to market at first, is a botanical product. So a dietary supplement um, under the same regulatory framework as something like salvia or, or kratom, where you have a, a you know, botanical that was un, it's unregulated and you know, it, it, it has some psychedelic elements or, or, you know, psychotropic elements in the case of Kratom. But it isn't addictive. There's no potential for abuse. It's used mainly for like, you know, again, cognition enhancement and creativity enhancement and couched inside of other supplements in a way that it, it de-risks the ability for people to like take too much. And, and those products will be released after proper toxicology studies are done after all the, rel the, the relevant legal analysis is done. And, and interestingly enough, they can rest on previous sales of similar extracts or similar products 
from cultivars of this plant from elsewhere. And, and a good I, example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to ask real quick. So, I mean, I know this, you know, the studies have to be done and stuff, but I know that you have like probably personally experimented with the stuff. Like, what were what was it like for you when you consumed this stuff? What effects did you personally get? The Kenne plant. Yeah, I haven't taken it, man. Really? No, like, I have a very scientific process, and like, I, I really don't like to take something until I've read everything about it. Case in point, like when I was a teenager reading about DMT and ayahuasca and stuff, like. I read about it for five or six years before I took it. Oh, wow. okay, okay, okay. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense because you, you're going to be running some studies and you don't want to inject your own bias and everything. So that that's very helpful too. Yeah, okay, but it gotcha. smells great. And okay, so your smell, smell you're, you're alone, smelling yeah. it is the extent of your consumption. Got it. So far, <laughs> okay. so far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I just I guess I just assumed that since you had the vial, you had you know consumed some of it. No, and this is actually more of a perfume because it's an essential oil. So, so this is for one of the other potential initial products that come out of it, the botanical products that come to market in the near term, like within the next year, is, is actually a perfume product. And there are plenty of companies that look to the Amazon for interesting oils to use for perfumes. And especially because this one is so volatile and smells so amazing, it, it has a place in, in the kind of cosmetics and perfume industry. Gotcha. I, I think what is cool about this idea is that you are, you're not focused just on the plant. It's like the art around the plant and the culture around it. I mean, I guess you could sort of say that cannabis is similar. There's a lot of like cannabis art and like cannabis, you know, aesthetic, I guess. Right. Um, but in general, you don't see that as much, right? Like there's not a specific style of art associated with cannabis necessarily, but in this case, there's literally like, this is the art that goes with this plant. And that's yeah. like very interesting. And it's like a lifestyle movement too, right? It's like nowadays this lifestyle of being connected with indigenous peoples, respecting indigenous wisdom, trying to celebrate indigenous identity and culture and representation in psychedelics is picking up more and more steam. So there's there's a way that Kene Life and the association with Kene can help to stand for those principles of decolonizing your mind, of celebrating indigenous peoples, celebrating the cultural diversity of our species and, and the amazing, you know, traditions related to some of these psychedelic medicines that are quickly being kind of taken out of their original context into these synthetic laboratories, often in ways that don't have any reciprocity. Yeah. And so when you talk about art and IP and reciprocity and everything and ownership, there's sort of one other very interesting technology that kind of comes up. And that, of course, is, you know, crypto and NFTs. And I know you've done some interesting work at the intersection of like psychedelic IP and, you know, blockchain technologies. Can you talk a little bit about the research you've done there and how crypto can actually be used to facilitate some of these, you know, ownership um, ledgers and, you know, payments to, to these tribes? Um, yeah, I would love to kind of get into that a little bit. So there's a few, there's a kind of a few things to talk about there, and I'll hit the easy one first, which is banking the unbanked. So uh, if you imagine an indigenous farmer, Shipibo Kanibo farmer, on one of our ayahuasca slash kenewaste farms, we have eight hectares under cultivation with about fifteen thousand plants, some capi, some shakruna, some kene plant and other trees that are interspersed in the kind of in, in the fields in order to create shade and more of a permacultural environment than a monocultural environment. 
those people don't have bank accounts. And at the same time, they have equity of the company because we want to advance this model of community-owned agricultural corporations. So then the question is, well, like, what use is private equity to them? No use at all, really, if they don't have bank accounts. And even if the company goes public, can they really sell their equity if they don't have a bank account? They have to jump through so many hoops just to be able to realize that capital gain from holding equity of a private corporation. And so the answer to that problem is to hold equity in DAO tokens instead of in traditional private shares on a ledger in a spreadsheet somewhere. And by doing that, by paying people in tokens of a DAO who otherwise don't have bank accounts, you create a bank account for them, just this you know blockchain wallet, super easy to do. And you give them the opportunity to realize gain from that in the near term through liquidity and crypto markets. And then once they've done that, they can actually sell the Bitcoin or the Ethereum at a local internet cafe or currency exchange desk in the middle of the jungle in Pucallpa, Peru to cash. But so, so they don't need a bank account to do that, though? At all. They don't need an, an account with an official bank. All they need is a blockchain wallet and you know, a, a currency exchange. Oh, uh, so you're talking about so at those physical currency exchanges, you can actually like send crypto to their wallet, and they'll actually give you cash. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and in internet cafes as well, there's the same process. And and so you have this really cool other model where people who don't have banks are still able to get paid in cash and equity, and they're able to realize their equity based compensation into cash in a relatively trivial way. So that, that's one way that, that blockchain and Web3 becomes immediately relevant to a project like this. And we've already proved out the model. You know, we've, we've paid in, in Bitcoin and in Ethereum the employees of the agricultural co-op growing the plants in a community called Santa Clara. So, so that's one way. But where it starts to get much more interesting in my mind is in the world of IP and IP ownership. Which, which I think was the thrust of your question. And that plays out in this really cool platform called Molecule. That's a platform for decentralized drug development, funding early stage research into promising pharmaceuticals or promising drugs so that they can kind of cross the typical valley of death in pharmaceutical research where so many projects get funded at the very early stage, but very few make it across the valley of death to commercialization. And at that early stage, it's actually pretty hard to get funding. You need it from traditional biotech VCs, or you need it from big grants from universities. And researchers at universities are often tasked with finding their own funding to do their research. So enter Molecule, which says well, we're looking at that very early stage, pre-IP, we're going to buy basically future rights to any IP generated from the research. And we're going to do that by housing your uh, contract research agreement with the IP rights inside of a non-fungible token that gives it composability and the ability to freely trade it on chain. Then when you have these IP NFTs, non-fungible tokens that contain IP rights to future research, you also have the ability to fractionalize those through a framework we developed recently at VitaDAO called Friends, 
which F-R-E-N-S, standing for Fair, Reasonable, Ethical, Non-Discriminatory Sublicense. And what that does is takes a single IP NFT and it fractionalizes it into maybe 100 or 1,000 small ERC-20 tokens, which are fungible and distributable and can have liquidity and build a community around the IP. And then you get this really cool situation where you have a group of stakeholders who are gathered around the IP. Maybe it's IP related to the Kenne plant, for example. And some of the holders include the indigenous peoples who, who stand to benefit directly from the research. And they also include people like you or I who are wanting to see what the outcome is of the science and what the IP that arises might be. And into that system, you have automatic royalties built in. And so whenever there's a sale, a secondary sale of a friend's token or an IP NFT, the original holder of the IP gets an automatic royalty. And you start to create these capital pools of royalties that can be governed in a community-governed way through like a multi-signature wallet. And so what happens there is a system whereby early stage IP, even at this stage, right, where we're like, well, there's interesting IP, but we haven't filed patents on methods of extraction or methods of use or um, new chemical entities derived from the core plant material and, you know, developed as potential pharmaceuticals. And, And then we can distribute that IP ownership to the tribe itself and then distribute these fair, reasonable, ethical, non-discriminatory sub-licenses to the community of interested participants to support the friends. And so you are, are you going to try and utilize this um, technology in the Kennedy Life project? Is that going to be a component? For sure, right, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, of course, of course. And, and so kind of the, like perhaps the first funding round, maybe the second funding round for the Kennedy project is an IP NFT fundraiser on the molecule discovery platform. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just to sort of like break that down a little bit, if you were going to try and do this without the blockchain, what you would basically have to do is you you still have the contract that says this contract like represents all the future legal rights to this research. You would have to basically create like a special purpose vehicle that like owned that contract. And then you'd have to like sell shares in that special purpose vehicle. But of course, when you just create like a special purpose vehicle, there's no exchange that these like, you know, ownership shares can be traded on. There's no way to automatically have royalties handed down to the owners. So the innovation here is really like taking that process and putting it on the blockchain so that people can just freely sort of trade these like fractionalized shares of sort of the master contract that owns the future rights to the research. Is that kind of the right idea? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And, and thereby distribute the ownership of the IP to the community rather than concentrating it inside of the SPV. Um, it's, it's distributed to a community of willing stakeholders. And that creates these kind of community-driven research opportunities around particular IP that rests in the ultimate vision of Molecule, which is what if diabetics collectively owned insulin? Wouldn't that be a better world than the world that we are in right now where diabetics are exploited by price hikes in the underlying insulin drug, often dying because they can't afford it? What if they were the owners of the IP and you know had, therefore, the, the 
easier access rights and, and also rights to market it. I get what you mean there, but like the the cynic in me says, well, won't, you know, whatever big pharma company, won't they just buy up all of these fractionalized shares and end up owning it anyway? Yeah, if people are willing to sell them, right? That's where the free market comes in. And and it may just be prohibitively expensive for them to do so, for the pharma company to do so, to come in and buy, you know, a majority of the the fractionalized shares in order to gain control. That makes sense. And so is this is this technology also going to be used in the El Puente project, which I know you kind of wanted to talk a little bit about? A little bit, yeah. N- not as much. I mean, El Puente is a foundation for furthering access and benefit sharing with Indigenous peoples through making grants and investments into projects owned, operated by, and supporting Indigenous peoples in order to promote their influence in the psychedelic sector as a whole, and then thereby promote reciprocity through, in my opinion, through reparations by another name. And the other name is impact investments and grants. And because, because that's based on a principle that an indigenous group called Umiak, which are the union, the union of Yahe practitioners of basically Colombia, who said, listen, guys, we don't want to talk about reciprocity until we talk first about reparations. Because to us, reciprocity is often colonialism by another name. What are you really asking for? You're asking for us to give you stuff. Reciprocity, two-way street, right? But until you've helped to heal this ancestral trauma from colonization through reparations, then we don't really want to do reciprocity. And that makes sense to me. And so I thought, well, how do we answer that? And how do we design for a system that really respects that input? And and that's where this idea of impact investments and grants comes in, where the reparations happen through capital flows from us into these projects. And then the reciprocity comes from working together on implementing the projects. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And that that El Puente project is... um this is sort of under the woven science umbrella. Is that right? Yep. So w- woven hired me last year in June to help them design El Puente and to help them design what was initially supposed to be just its corporate foundation and, and still is. So El Puente foundation is woven sciences, corporate foundation, holding woven equity, holding equity of woven ecosystem companies but in order to, to democratize and decentralize the decision-making of what grants and investments should be made from El Puente Foundation, we've created this DAO in order to empower the community, to help source deal flow, to filter deal flow, and then to ultimately decide on where the money goes. And to do that in a way that respects Indigenous people, I designed a council of elders with veto powers on project financing decisions. So they hold a majority of the keys to the multi-signature wallet, holding the community-governed treasury of the DAO. And they ultimately are the arbiters of whether funding goes to a particular project or not. I think one of the themes here that we keep hitting on is that like, the, the governance model of these projects is, is not something that should just be an afterthought. It should be sort of like a very, it's, it's a very important thing. And uh, the governance model can really like make or break the impact that a certain project has. And so I think that sort of like brings me to, you know, one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording, which was this idea that maybe the maps model is not um, perfect and could be improved upon. What are your thoughts on the maps model? 
Yeah, Brahman. You know, I've been a, a little critical of it from the start. I love maps and I love what they're doing. I think they're, you know, they're pioneers, basically the coolest, most OG organization in the space. Um, and what they did, right, is they, they've launched this public benefit corporation in order to handle basically the distribution and sale of MDMA. And they've made this public benefit corporation wholly owned by MAPS 501c3 nonprofit. Okay. So the Seemingly public benefit corporation paper. is owned by the nonprofit. 100% owned by the nonprofit. Problem is, public benefit corporation was created in order to make a mechanism for socially responsible shareholders to hold directors to account. And that mechanism is through shareholder derivative lawsuits against directors who have gone awry. Right? And so here's the question. If you have a public benefit corporation wholly owned by a related nonprofit, which is receiving revenues from the PBC, where are the third-party socially responsible shareholders who can bring derivative lawsuits to hold the corporation to account? They aren't there. That's a good question. And they don't have like the PBC, you said it's wholly owned. So I guess that means it doesn't have like some sort of independent board of directors that's not affiliated with the nonprofit. Maybe it does, but they're not able to bring shareholder derivative lawsuits, which is the the, the, the crux of the PBC. You, oh, I see. So it's the, the lawsuit has to come from the shareholders and the only shareholder is MAPS. Okay, got it. Yeah. So why, why, would, the, why would MAPS nonprofit sue MAPS PBC? And, and so the PBC was designed for that, right? And the only difference between a PBC and a C corporation is that every other year, at least, the PBC has to submit a report to the shareholders saying what did they do to try to achieve their special purpose inserted into their certificate of formation. Right. And of course, since the shareholder is their parent nonprofit, like, you know, I'm, it, it's very easy to imagine that just being, you know, automatically rubber stamped and approved. And it's like, all right, we, you know, we're good. You know, not, yeah, not there's no sort of Damocles there. Right. And the PBC is designed to have a sort of Damocles dangling over the corporation from socially responsible shareholders and capital. And so that brings us to the, the current MAPS financing deal. Right, which which Rick Doblin himself said he considers to in many ways to be a great defeat of his purpose, which was to fund it through nonprofit means entirely. And you know, he, he, there's a great interview with him where he goes into that a little bit. And I I kind of agree. I think it it's really well intentioned to have this financing vehicle that is profit sharing and ratchets down the amount of profit shared to the financing vehicle as profits grow. But it's still only a small cabal of private shareholders. The general donors of MAPS, the small donors, aren't able to participate in that vehicle. So it's already creating this exclusive structure and excluding the crowd who otherwise have just given their money freely. Yeah, I think that the the minimum investment to participate in that was, you know, it was like a seven-figure amount or something. So, yeah, you, it's certainly not something that is, like, democratized or anything like that, right? No, it perpetuates the rich-get-richer scenario. And crucially, it doesn't have, it doesn't offer any shares of the PBC. And so e even if that that group of investors consists of socially responsible shareholders, which it does, right, has... Funds like Vine and Palo Santo and a bunch of well-meaning people who are conscious capital, they have no power to bring a shareholder derivative lawsuit. Right. Because they're not actually shareholders. Because the they're not shareholders. Yeah. 
So that's it. In my opinion, it's it's it misses the mark. The map structure, while well intentioned, and the map steel, while well intentioned, they both miss the mark a little bit because they fail to take advantage of the PBC structure as it was designed and what it was designed to do. That makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe, maybe whatever the next maps is, maybe it's SciDAO, maybe it's something else, maybe, may, you know, maybe it will be designed in a different way such that, you know, those problems don't occur. But I guess, you know, it's a learning process. And I think the world is still trying to figure out how to operate under paradigms other than maximize shareholder value at all costs. So, yeah, I mean, still got to, you know, respect maps for what they've done. But yeah, it's very interesting and definitely a discussion worth having. So Jesse, I know we've been talking for a while. One last question for you, dude. We we talked on the phone and you said this really funny thing, which was that um, shaman begins with sham. <laughs> I've gotten in a fair amount of trouble for that one, Dom. Problem, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I've always thought it was an interesting wordplay. And, you know, in studying shamanism in, in, in college, you know, a key part of the literature talks about the history of charlatanism in shamanism. And it's still very present today. You, you know, you talk to a, a hardcore biotech scientist, um, like our friend at biotech. And you mentioned shamanism and he's like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, my, my, my wife, like, you know, she, uh, she comes from uh, a native tribe or has ties to a native tribe in Brazil. And, she had some some ailment, and they were like, "Oh yeah, take some like fresh snake blood and like put it on your arm, and it's going to make you feel better." And she just got a big rash. And so there, there's a lot of skepticism about shamanism and shamanic medicine that is warranted because of the history of charlatanism that it's associated with. And, and even today, you have people who purport to be shamans advertising services in the airport in Iquitos or in you know in, in the urban environments who end up being predatory sometimes sexual predators, often people who are mixing their ayahuasca with highly volatile plants like datura, which contains um, the same active ingredient that is one of the ingredients of the shaman potion. So it, it, it I mean, I mean, not the shaman potion, sorry, the zombie potion made by shamans in Haiti. So they give, they give people the puffer fish first, which gives them the fake death. And then they dig up their grave and they feed them to Tura paste, which is the scopolamine that totally boggles their mind. Yeah, I've heard that Tura is like one of the worst trips that you could have. Yep, it is. Funnily enough, it's also kind of widely used in the Amazon. You can buy Tura leaf rolled tobacco, for example, and, and smoke it. And it can be used for good stuff, but it's notoriously um, psychotropic and often causes psychosis. And like many, many kids and teens in Arizona will go, have to go to the psych ward after smoking Jimson weed, which is a version of Datura. And, and so, you know, these predatory sham shamans still exist today, serving these suspicious brews, preying upon people, you know, dressing up in, in many ways to perform the identity of shaman and, you know, do a bunch of mumbo jumbo that isn't real. And isn't grounded in reality. And so any student of shamanism should approach shamans with a lot of skepticism. And, and so, you know, I say that shaman, it begins with sham because that's grounded in, in historical reality. And it also allows people to have a healthy skepticism 
going into what is a very vulnerable space. Yeah, I think skepticism, I think there needs to be a little bit more skepticism in the psychedelic community, especially sort of like the plant medicine side of the psychedelic community, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, I love it. I think, you know, I think that, um, in addition to the Ken A art stuff, you, you need a shirt that says like shaman starts with sham that that's I'll buy that. If you, if you, oh, really? that, yeah, it, it would, it would compete with the goop shirt that says shaman says, <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> Well, dude, hey, man, don't talk too much shit about Goop. Uh, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow might start uh, selling Kenny art at some point on, <laughs> on the No, Goop I website. love Goop, you know. <laughs> yeah. you know. Maybe they can sell it alongside. And they they sure would probably love the Kenny art there, especially under this regime that we're proposing, which is a fair licensing regime, very similar to fair trade. Because the reality is that the Kenny art is already being appropriated pretty wildly with no royalties paid to the tribe. Pier One sold pillowcases with Kenny on them, right? For example, and you're so you're basically saying that there would be sort of like a, I don't know, stamp of authenticity or whatever. Like this is fair trade or fairly, you know, um, replicated Kenny art. Got it. Mm -hmm. Fair license. Fair license. Well, dude, Jesse, we've hit on some pretty awesome shit. Is there anything else that you kind of wanted to touch on today, or does that pretty much cover it? Yeah, and I, th I think that pretty much covers it. Like, I've immensely enjoyed our conversation, and I think we still have a lot more to talk about well into the future. There's so much interesting stuff happening right now in psychedelics. You know, us, our work together on PsyDAO as it emerges will, I think, be a subject of great interest and conversation because the movement to create a psychedelic commons in order to kind of prevent too much IP monopolization is a noble one. And it's part of the premise and the promise of DAOs. Another subject we could talk about potentially another time, but I'll give a plug for now, is this idea of indigenous people civilizing Western people that kind of flips the script on its head and says that actually indigenous thought has formed the foundation of much of Western liberal thought the concepts of culture, concepts of decolonization, and even perhaps the corporate structures of DAOs. Interesting. Well, dude, this is this is going to be a great preview for episode two, which we'll have to do sometime <laughs> soon. Um, in the meantime, Jesse, where can people find you online? Where can they follow your work? You can find us at the El Puente DAO, the nascent Discord. Um, and in order to get there, just check out the El Puente Dow announcement on the Woven Science Medium page. You can also find me in the Molecule Dow and in the Vita Dow, both of which have porous discords that you can just jump right into. Uh, and otherwise, send me an email at, at jesse at woven.science. And I'm very happy to take some time to chat, learn more about whatever you're working on, and see how we can work together. You're a very brave man for putting your email out there like that. I applaud it. Well, Jesse, this oh, has been great. Thanks so much. And uh, you have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Brom. You too, man.